0: Hello and welcome to Creating Discomfort. This podcast comes to you from the Hinterian University of Glasgow. I am Zandra Yeaman, Creator of Discomfort. On today's episode, we will hear from Nelson and Jesper discussing a gold guinea coin from England. I'm Nelson Cummins. I am the Communities and Campaigns Officer at the Coalition for Racial Equality and Rights. Uh, we're an anti-racist charity based in Glasgow. And my role in this project with Hunterian has been as one of the community creators. So that's involved like picking out objects to be displayed in the museum and picking out objects for the intervention that's going on in the sort of spying cases as well.
1: And I'm Jesper Eriksson, Curator of Numismatics at The Hunterian, and I'm responsible for a collection of about 90,000 numismatic objects, mostly coins and medals, but uh, all kinds of other material like tokens, banknotes, that kind of thing. Today we are looking at a coin. It's a bit larger in diameter than the one-pound coin, but much thinner. It's made of gold which we'll come back to. And it's called a Guinea, and it was struck in London in 1663. So on the obverse of the coin, the front of the coin, there's a, there's a portrait of Charles II. And on the back of the coin, we've got four crowned shields of England, Scotland, Ireland, and France. There's inscriptions on both sides as well. It's all abbreviated and in Latin, so it says Charles II, by the grace of God, King of Britain, France, and Ireland. The gold itself is of a fantastic quality. It's got a real luster to it when you when you angle it in the light. It's not not a pale gold. There's some, almost like an I'd say like an orangey or almost a tint to it. But the main reason we're looking at this coin today is because of a very small detail underneath the, uh, the portrait bust of Charles II. And there's a small elephant right there. It's hard to see, actually, with the naked eye. It's so small. But that little elephant is the symbol of the company of Royal Adventurers of England trading into Africa. So that tells us that the gold that this guinea is made from was African gold. And there's so much more to say about that, isn't there, Nelson?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's partly what made me choose the objects or not. Like the name of the coin, it being called like the sort of Charles, is it the Charles II or first gold guinea? It's, it's Charles II, yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. So yeah. he came to the throne in 1660 yeah. in, in the restoration. Yeah. And then he chartered the Royal company of royal adventurers trading into Africa. And plenty of trade had been undertaken to Africa in the decades before that. But in the year, in the very year that this particular Guinea was minted in 1663, the company received a new charter. And in that charter, for the first time, it mentions the buying and selling of slaves. Mm -hmm. And the company received a governor the king's younger brother, James, who would later go on to rule as James II between 1685 and 1688.
0: When you're talking about it there, I'm actually reminded of like why I chose the object, because I think when I first saw it, I thought there must be a really interesting wider story to it, and I was really struck by the way this sort of symbol of wealth, and the symbolism of the coin could be used to explore further stories like chattel slavery, like legacies of colonialism, and slavery, sort of, and how they connect into the UK from Africa and mm. particularly West Africa and Guinea. And the way you were talking about that, I was like, that's the sort of. I think I partly chose the objects. I thought it'd be a good starting point to jump off into wider conversations about those subjects. Yeah,
1: very much so. And and again, the the reason we. L- chose this coin, or wanted to look at this coin in particular, is that 1662 was the the first year that the guinea was issued. And it is later on, I think it's December 1663 that the company actually gave or asked for permission for its, its gold to be yeah. used. Actually cut that, because the thing is, it's this weird thing whereby Actually, their gold was already in the country, but the charter was in December that officially created it. So we don't know exactly when this was made, but it was definitely 1663, that's yeah. the point. It's what, this is probably one of the first guineas made from African gold to be struck at the mint. So that's why it's also quite special. It's also an interesting coin because of the collection it comes from. So this is not from William Hunter's original 1783 bequest, although his collection also contains guineas. This is from the Coates collection. And Thomas Coates was a wealthy Paisley industrialist in the 19th century, and he inherited family wealth from the Coates group of Paisley, so it was almost thread manufacturers. And their familial wealth and possible connections to a slave trader also being investigated. And he died in the 1880s, and then in 1924. The Coates family donated the Coates collection of of coins Mm -hmm. to the Hunterian. So there is that other dimension, not only the connection to the the slave trade through the coin itself and through the the company that transported the gold to London from West Africa, but also the collector
0: who gave Mm -hmm. it to the Hunterian. Yeah. How, I'm just thinking about that, how often in numismatics have you? Do you find that the origins of objects are explored in that sort of detail?
1: Rarely, yeah. and that's part of the reason why this project's so important. Yeah. Uh, provenance is always important for museum objects, mm-hmm. we want to know where the objects come from, but especially with numismatics, it's, the provenance trail can be quite short. Yeah. The best kind of trail you could hope for is if perhaps an item has been sold through various auctions, mm-hmm but when you trace it right back to that very first person who acquired the coin where did they get it from so where did this coin come from where did the man who was buying coins for thomas coates who was called edward burns where did he find it
0: mm-hmm.
1: now in other parts of the coates collection we have invoices so we perhaps know when a medal was bought alongside a lot of other medals or rather when these medals came to the collection because the invoices dated on that date but where, where was this source from? We don't know. Yeah. And, and as you can see, the coin is in fantastic condition. I mean, it really is, looks as if it's just come straight from the mint. So it's been in collectors' hands.
0: Yeah. I think that's really interesting, because like, one thing I think I've found out more in sort of working on this project is about the sort of lack of knowledge museums have about their collections. Mm-hmm. I think it's so fascinating when we're having a lot more discussions about issues of like restitution, repatriation things like that like that actually a lot of the time museums don't necessarily know where the objects come from I know Mm. there's exemptions to that like the British Museum where so much of the way the museum's set off is actually to display looted goods but I think it's really interesting in the Ontario that there there could be goods that you don't necessarily know about because that research hasn't been done I think it's just such a big piece of research that could be done definitely yeah
1: And, and also there is the issue of whether that research is possible whether the evidence is there, I mean, can be found. Mm. William Hunter himself didn't keep provenances. We have his account books. You know, we know how much he spent on on acquisitions, on collections that he bought in. But of the 30,000 numismatic items that represent the core of the Hunterian's original collection, we
0: don't know where most of that came from. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about the implications that has as well, to thinking about histories of colonialism and transatlantic slavery too That idea that so some of the objects in the collections will have you know incredible like value to the communities that they've come from so mm. I'm thinking of like the Ashanti gold box for example and it's interesting to think that someone's collected that not kept a record of where it's come from it's almost as if it doesn't matter like or to mm-hmm. me it's almost as if it doesn't matter who it's come from it's like it's ours now it doesn't no matter who we've taken that from, they're not relevant to us anymore. Yeah, and we're just coming round to that yeah.
1: in, in projects like this, which is, which is, again, this is the way forward for museums in general. And what's so heartening is to see how the museum's sector has embraced these ideas and these concepts, and they, they want to actively explore their collections and actively explore, the if you like, the previously hidden histories of objects. Yeah because it it certainly to me on a personal level it's it's massively important you know curating discomfort has been an extraordinary project for me to work on I've I've really appreciated having community curators being a part of the whole process from selection right through to curation to be able to listen to alternate points of view and new perspectives because it is very easy in, in lots of our jobs to, to end up in bubbles, right? Yeah. You know, we're so involved with our yeah. projects and we work in these bubbles and we sort of almost form these little echo chambers around ourselves and to have those bubbles burst is, is, is so valuable. Yeah. I think if people think of maybe, should we call them traditional, old-fashioned museums and a sense of ownership that curators might feel over their collections, it's not my collection, it's the Hunterian's <laughs> collection and the hunterian's collection is here to be used to be studied to be researched to be interrogated and in terms of the curating discomfort project one of the greatest discomforts i still feel is the opposition to that interrogation mm-hmm. to me when somebody says we need to just stop looking at the past you know <laughs> the past was the past we need to just put it to bed, and just be grateful that we live in the society that we live in today, I just think, why are you so afraid? What are you so afraid of? And why, should, why should there be fear about interrogating the past and interrogating objects? Because surely that, to me, is, is the path to open up and understand the past. And sure, we will have our modern perspectives that we may project back onto the past, but if we recognise that, then there's so much benefit to, to all of us.
0: Yeah, I yeah, understand. I'm just, I almost wonder, if there's that like defensiveness, because when you start to... So like Glasgow's a really good example, so Glasgow as a city still struggles a lot with issues of racism, particularly in our key institutions. And actually when you sort of look back on the history of the city, there's always been that history of very deep ties to chattel slavery, colonialism, Mm -hmm. and Glasgow is sort of like known as the second city of empire. And I think a lot of the racism that exists in Glasgow in the present day has that sort of root back to the past and back to the era of the British empire and the sort of scientific racism that drove things like chattel slavery. And I think... Mm -hmm when we analyze that past, we can actually see a clear path that we've taken to the present. That's sort of taken us from the racism of the past to the racism of the present. And I think a lot of time mm-hmm. analyzing that can be uncomfortable for people. I think especially mm-hmm. if you're in a position of privilege as well, mm-hmm. it can be very easy to not look further and not want to be challenged or made uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. I think that's why actually looping back to creating discomfort, like such a good name because it is supposed to be mm-hmm. like challenging, racism and an institution having perhaps its issues of racism challenge is supposed to be Mm -hmm. an uncomfortable thing. I think that's why Mm -hmm. creating discomfort itself is such like a perfect name for the project too. I agree and also
1: being a part of the project has also helped me you know realise that actually it's not a being uncomfortable is not a bad thing.
0: No definitely yeah.
1: It's a good process to to go through and if I can just sort of loop it back to the coin, this, this gold guinea. This coin, to me, because it was struck in 1663, because it's one of the first coins with the symbol of a company of Royal Adventurers of England trading into Africa, which later turned into the Royal African Company. You know, this, this in a numismatic sense, represents the start of that chapter of the company's history. Mm -hmm. And the Royal African Company transported more enslaved persons across the Atlantic than any other company in the history of the transatlantic slave trade, which Mm -hmm. is horrifying. And, Nelson, you and I have read an article, a very interesting article, almost trying to soothe the conscience of, uh, of, of collectors of this type of coin. By saying that the vessels that transported this African gold from the Guinea Coast to London didn't transport slaves, they were on a different leg of that infamous triangle of the Atlantic, but of course they missed the fundamental point that it's the same company. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And you cannot escape that truth. Yeah. I think mean, that's that's what I'm, I think mean, that's like something actually that's really common in defences of, like almost actually defences of the British Empire, because I don't know, it's like you scroll through Twitter and you see someone saying, but the British Empire ended slavery, for example. And it just misses that point that actually, it misses the amount of wealth and money that was made from Mm -hmm. the transatlantic slave trade. And that wealth, as you're sort of alluding to there, that wealth enables those ships to take you know, the gold back up to London or the UK while some of the other ships are going to plantations in America and in the Caribbean and in the West Indies mm-hmm. and it just misses the way that the wealth that is made from transatlantic slavery has just driven so much of the UK's like, development and so much of the development in a lot of our cities today. Like Again, Glasgow is a really good example. There's so many buildings in Glasgow that wouldn't be there if it wasn't for wealth from chattel slavery. You could just rattle off lots of them, like Kelvin Grove, the Gallery of Modern Art. But there's so, so many. It could be a whole other um, podcast if I rattled them all off. No, but of course. It's the. I think it's so often missed that this wealth wasn't something that just mm-hmm. went away when the British Empire ended. It's then driven more and more inequality throughout history, and it's continued to make you know, one part of the world wealthy while another part of the world hasn't been. Mm-hmm. And actually Edinburgh is a really good example of a city of that. So Edinburgh's New Town, which is mm. like a lovely part of the city. Is. Most of, or not most, a lot of the building work that was done in Edinburgh's New Town, a lot of the money that drove that came from the uh, slavery compensation scheme that compensated enslavers. And it's such a good example of where the wealth um, and slavery sort of continued to go after slavery had ended. It was used in cities like Edinburgh, cities in Glasgow, to drive a whole new wave Mm. of development, while other parts of the world um, where enslaved peoples live had nothing Mm. and were ruined by centuries of slavery. And I think, again, I'm just thinking of that coin. It's such a good symbol of being able to just jump off and talk about other things and find myself uh, looking at it every time and thinking, yeah, it's such a good symbol of like the wealth that's come from transatlantic slavery but it's also so good for letting you think about other things connected to not just transatlantic slavery but also colonialism and the british empire in general yeah and numismatics a large part of it i mean it's
1: quite an ambiguous term but a lot of numismatics is looking at objects relating to money payment and currency yeah and the the drive to acquire more wealth was obviously, as we've just talked about, one of the fundamental gears of, of empire, of mm-hmm. colonialism. And although gold had been traded in Guinea for a long time before this particular coin was struck, I'm also just, it just makes me think that England wasn't the only European nation yeah. in that part of the world wanting gold. The, the desire for gold drove the expansion of mines, the expansions of, of forts being rented from local leaders. Mining would not have been a pleasant occupation in any part of the world in the 17th century, but especially perhaps in an African gold mine. So, as well as looking at, you're right, all those international and historical perspectives, you, we can look at a a coin like this and think, well, what about the toil of individuals who mined that gold? What was their everyday life like? And it was all feeding into this system of this acquisition of wealth by the local mining officers, if you like, for want a better expression, and then the local leaders and then the Europeans who were in that part of the world feeding all the way back to the king himself. And for me, the other thing I think about is uh, regarding when when the Royal African Company came into being with Charles II still as the king and his uh, younger brother James still as the company governor. And the fact that enslaved persons were branded with the company initials, but not just the company initials. Also, sometimes the initials D O Y, Duke of York, mm-hmm. and that man James eventually became king. Mm-hmm. So, when I look at this Charles II Guinea, I then think of Guineas of the later monarchs that came along, because the the symbol of the elephant, and then later the symbol of the elephant and howdah, isn't just exclusive to Charles II. It's it, it, Guineas were struck by, by future monarchs as well, mm-hmm. and it's some of the Guineas of James II, to me, really represent amongst the, the darkest of the histories mm-hmm. when it comes to these coins, because on that, in that portrait, he was the governor of the company. Yeah. He, he and his older brother were, were <laughs> driving this industry yeah. forward. And and his initials were on human beings. Yeah, that's rocking.
0: And they just wanted more. Yeah. and it's like a it shows as well like, like how it didn't. You know, it just went all the way up to the top of British society mm-hmm. as well. I know. I feel like a lot of time when we speak about these histories, we almost like we connect it to almost like the wealthy elite at the mm-hmm. sort of historically the top of. UK society, but sometimes you can miss out how connected the royal family were historically mm-hmm. to, uh, obviously they were the heads of the Empire, but I think sometimes you just forget that and when you talk about that it's yeah. just, I was sort of thinking of the fact that, you know, William and Kate are in Jamaica right now and there are people wondering why they're being met by protests. And it's, yeah. I feel like if they listened to you there, they wouldn't be surprised that why would be up being met by protests, so. I know, and, and one, of, one of
1: the articles I was reading today um, was really interesting because it was talking about the, uh, the mistakes, the, the gaffes, if you want to call it that, that they've made so far, the photo opportunities that have gone mm-hmm. wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, was it such a good idea for William to dress up in his... In his whites, in his uniform, with Kate by his side in the back of a Land Rover, echoing, you know, his grandfather and grandmother on a visit to Jamaica many decades ago. You know, in the modern, I'm sure it was maybe meant as a, as a, as a tribute. Yeah. But, in this modern world that we live in, especially to some Jamaicans, I'm sure they just thought that smacked of imperialism.
0: Yeah, I think especially with the the context of like Barbados now being a republic, and of talk of Jamaica as well. It just yeah, it was, it was quite stuck. <laughs> I think I really hope that this project is taken into other museums because I think every museum in Scotland would benefit from having this work take place within its institution and yeah I think that would be an amazing legacy for the project but I also hope that it continues to change the ways of working in the Hunterian I hope it isn't just something that is prioritized for the sort of 12 months that we've been working on it and then falls by the wayside for other projects so I really hope it has a lasting impact and yeah I hope it's actually I hope almost in 10-15 years time you can go back and the Hunterians like a leading example of sort of anti-racist practice in the museum and people can go back and say well that all started with the creating discomfort work. Um, yeah, That would be one of my
1: great hopes as yeah. well. I'm, I wanted to be a part of this project because I wanted it to mean something. I've worked in the museum industry for, for, for many years in quite a traditional way and I, I wanted... I don't know how else to put it apart from I wanted my job to mean more. And this has been a, a way of, for me to feel that we're embarking on something exciting and new that will be really beneficial, not only for the Ontarian but for us, those of us that work here, the, the individuals and groups that hopefully come in for more projects in the future that, that, that we can all be involved in. And also, I just want It to be a new visitor experience as well. I want this to to open people's eyes. I want to make the visitors think. And yes, they might be uncomfortable. But as I said earlier, I don't think that's a bad thing.
0: Thank you for listening to the Creating Discomfort podcast. This episode was brought to you by the Hunterian at University of Glasgow. Production, sound, and editing were done by Karis Sanderson, Holly Wade, and Eva Lope Lopez.